Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Teacher Renewed Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Palmas. I am a wife, mom, author, and lifelong educator who has been doing some hard work for two decades. This podcast is about renewing hope, happiness, and belief in education. We get real and talk candidly about ways educators across the globe are working to uproot the education system and making transformational changes for all educators and students. And beyond the why and the what these transformational education leaders are doing, we get into the how you as an educator can drive toward these changes. I am here to take away the pain, exhaustion that too many of us feel day in and day out and rid ourselves of the question if we made the right career choice. Trust me, you did. So let's dig in and ignite the joy, passion, and belief all educators had when deciding to enter a career in education. And let's make some change. So much is possible in education. All right. Well, welcome back to the Teacher Renewed Podcast. I'm Kelly Pomus, and I'm smiling ear to ear because our guest today is one of the most special people in my life. We've known each other for almost two decades, 17 years and counting. And I have to share a little about how our journey and our lives have intersected. And so today we have with us Dr. Jordy Sparks, and he's going to share a little about what he does or a lot about what he does. But here's the fun history of our friendship. My husband was his teacher coach. And then his wife, Jordy's wife, became a colleague of my husband's. Then Jordy, Aaron, my husband and I all became teachers together. And then Jordy's wife, Sarah, became a teacher with Aaron. And then I became Sarah's coach. And then we had our babies at the same time. In fact, we were at the hospital together and that's the rest is history. Now, 17 years later, here we are. It's so exciting to see you and then to think about this journey. I mean, we've gone on vacations together. Our boys are a mere few days apart and here we are just still in the throes of education, fighting for educational equity, working tirelessly to disrupt a system that we know can be disrupted. And so that's where I really want to talk about today. I'm really excited to know and share really with our listeners the work you're doing and how you're going about this disruption, if you will. But anyway, with all of that, Jordy, it's a really exciting time to have you here. And I would love to kick it over to you and have you introduce yourself and share a little about your own journey in education. Awesome. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you so much. Um, I'm also really excited to be here. The, the 17 years plus ago that we did meet, I always have learned from both you and Aaron as a beginning teacher. And I remember watching you all teach. I feel like we would take field trips to yours and Aaron's, uh, your, your and Aaron's classrooms because um, we would just watch you all teach and say, okay, I think I think I know how to do this. And then we would try it. We like, I'm nowhere close, but I'm going to try again. So anyways, it's it's been, it's been really cool to um, still know that you all are still in the in the work of public ed that you're still teaching that you're still leading schools and you know that's really encouraging because we know how hard and demanding and taxing and um especially after the past like two years that this work can be and so um when people do step out of it and and decide to pursue something else there's um there's like a sense of loss i feel like that you know, mm. we go through as a community to say, like, 
man, like we, you know, we lost a really good person to, uh, to the fight, but I feel like anytime I talk with you or talk with Aaron, I'm just always re-inspired and encouraged. I love your family and it's just been cool for us to have a history together from Charlotte to where we are now. So I'm now the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Oceanside Unified School District. This is a new position for the school district this year and a new team. And it was really visioned and crafted by myself um, and our superintendent and, um, you know, some other close friends of mine who have supported me in my work over the years, because prior to this, I've been with Oceanside Unified in a director of student services role, um, which I absolutely loved because I feel like the student services role is the place where um, all the things that I really care about intersect, you know, school culture, teacher coaching, uh, policies that can be rewritten and um, blown up and, and crafted again to help support students, uh, restorative practices and discipline practices, rather than having our uh, focus on equity and inclusion be, you know, kind of like a side hustle that we do in student services. Mm-hmm. It needs to be, I mean, it needs to be upfront. And I said, we need to have more of um, an emphasis on this. We need to be bold in how we say that we're about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and not wait until it's just a very common role popping up everywhere, which it happens to be at this point. But, you know, I'm really grateful for our board of education and for our superintendent who also understood this vision and they felt like, mm-hmm. yes, now's the time. And I, and I really do feel like there, there, there is a piece of making sure the timing is right and making sure that there's enough um, momentum behind this type of work. And I do feel like over the past two years, a lot of places, especially schools, businesses, um, other organizations have been reckoning with this idea of moving past, you know, random acts of DEI to actually saying, this is part of what we do and it lives and breathes throughout our organization. And so that's what we've been trying to do for the past year this year um, in building our team. We have a very small team in the district, but um, we're small and nimble and we are impactful. We um, have been really fortunate to lead a lot of training and professional learning around areas of um, unconscious bias. Um, we use a protocol called recognizing or prepare that we teach people on how to how to um, speak up and respond to incidents of racism and sexism and prejudice and homophobia. Um, all things that like are very much alive and well in our schools right now, especially returning from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. We lead trainings around um, allyship and what it means to support students and staff who are LGBTQ and you know how to create safe and affirming and inclusive spaces. And then with that work, we've been at the same time undergoing a, a full organization equity audit with an outside team mm-hmm. um, who's you know basically holding up a mirror to our organization and saying, like, here's what's really going on. Like, here's how people, students, staff, community members, parents are experiencing being a person in Oceanside Unified School District. And so all of that has been informing our work. And at the same time, it's been like open heart surgery and brain surgery at the same time, because you're just putting yourself out there. So that's all the work that we've been doing this year. And the side hustle has instead turned into the work that I've done with COVID stuff. So that was like the special project that the superintendent gave me. It was like, you need to take care of the COVID stuff. So that has been something that's been on my plate, but, um, that by no means has taken up all my time because it's really been an opportunity to focus on, I think, like tilling the soil in Oceanside to help us do better work long-term. 
And so that's, that's where I am right now. Um, awesome. I, I can tell you how I got here, but I don't know if you, you want to stop and ask a question or <laughs> I do want to stop and ask a question. So we can, we can come back to the journey and actually let's, let's do that. And I'll, I'll hold this yeah. question, but yeah, what, yeah, where, when did you start? How long did you teach? What was the, what was the trajectory that you took to become the director of DEI at Oceanside Schools, Unified School District? Yeah, so I, I came out to Oceanside in 2000, 2017, and that was part of my um, doctorate program with the Harvard Grad School of Education. It's the EDLD program, so Education Leadership Doctorate. It was really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I actually applied to the program twice. I got rejected the first time and then decided to go back a second time. I'll put it this way. Sarah said I had to go back a second time mm. and, and apply, so... Um, and that's a, that's a theme throughout my entire life is Sarah convincing me to do things that I don't think I'm able to do. Um, but we She's got like there, that. she is good like that. So we got to Harvard in, um, 2015, uh, which means that I left my school, uh, Newell elementary in Charlotte, North Carolina, where, um, I had been a principal there for a couple years and, um, we sold our home in Charlotte and we just like, mm. all right, we're all in, like, we're going to go. Um, and so we moved up to, to Cambridge and we did um, my two years of classes there. And then the third year is a residency where you go and immerse yourself in the space where you're doing your work and you match with the place, whether it's a nonprofit or a state department or a, um, a school district. And I matched with Oceanside yeah. and um, I did my work that year on um, what's called multiple pathways to meeting a promise, which, which meant that I was studying really um, specifically the alternative ed models in our in our school mm -hmm. district and trying to figure out two things one why were students who started with us in kindergarten ending up in the alternative ed models where they were credit deficient or falling behind or they had like you know dropped out and we had to get them back in and some were there because they wanted like an accelerated pathway the other thing i was trying to figure out is what can the quote-unquote traditional schools comprehensive schools um, learn from the alternative models um, mm -hmm. to help personalize and reach more students because I I had this theory that we send kids to alternative ed because they can't you know quote unquote make it in the traditional but we were missing opportunities to actually say well how are kids succeeding in those alter alternative models and what about the environment, culture, all that, you know, is, is contributing to that. So that was my, my, um, and so prior to the grad school of education, I was a principal in Charlotte for, um, I was administrator there for five years. And then I taught five years before that in fifth and sixth grade. I taught some of my placement school from Teach for America, which is where I subsequently became a principal. Mm. Um, but in between there, um, I, I partnered up with some crazy people like, like the Pomuses and some other <laughs> folks and, tried to, you know, open up this school in Charlotte called Kip Charlotte. And, you know, that was an experience too. And so all of those things, all those learning opportunities informed my desire to move into school leadership. That's what, you know, eventually led me to stepping into the admin role and, and moving it into kind of my path now. There was always this dissatisfaction of what we're currently doing and feeling as though like something more can be done. And so mm -hmm. that was always what pushed me into my next opportunity. And I think that's a great segue into then some of these, these questions that I'm having. And one is, yeah, 
so much of your work is what more can be done. And so what are you learning? Maybe it was from that fellowship in that third year, or maybe it's in this last year of this new role, but like what more can be done? What are the things that you believe fundamentally we could be doing differently to set a different trajectory for education in the United States? Loaded question, Jordy. Yeah. I feel like this would be a question you'd get if you were interviewing to be like the um, secretary of education. Um, I'm, <laughs> not sure if I get this, I'm not sure <laughs> if I can get this one right, but it's always about um, Maslow's before blooms. I say this all the time, but it's just like, what can we possibly do to create the conditions to where teachers will want to and can teach well and students will want to be there and learn? It's interesting now because I think what, what people are, are, are missing is no one wants to work or learn in a space where they're not affirmed, included, welcomed, and safe. That's always been the work. And um, I actually believe, and this has been true for me in my experience, both as a teacher and a principal, that when you do create the conditions um, for students to learn and for adults to be their best selves in their workspaces, that academic achievement is a byproduct. I was trained in a way through, through my Teach for America, the leaders training, go after the achievement and, you know, culture will like follow, right? And I have over time wrestled with that and there's always been intention. And so I've just come to the conclusion of like, you know, I think both are important, but I actually think that creating the conditions, um, you know, supersedes the academic achievement um, because that, that target always seems to move, right? Yes. It's like, it's like, what's the thing that, you know, what's the proficiency level that people are supposed to be getting at what point in time and based on what standards and based on what curriculum and state law. But like the thing that doesn't change is schools are very, very social places and it's mm -hmm. where people learn how to be with one another. It's where people learn how to solve problems. It's where people learn how to address issues in society. I mean, it's, it's all those things. And so um, there is more of a need than ever for school leaders, for teachers, for staff that um, support students and teachers and other staff um, to focus on creating the conditions for people to feel safe, included, affirmed, welcomed, mm. and have an opportunity to be the, their best selves in the classroom. So I think that's a big piece. I also think that we should explicitly teach things like SEL. So for example, like in Oceanside, something we've been working on for about three or four years has been, um, bringing elementary counselors into our programming. We've never had this before, but three years ago we launched it. We had elementary counselors covering two schools. Then we moved this year to an elementary counselor full-time at each school. Mm -hmm. and the cool thing about their work is every day in um, an elementary classroom across the district, there are counselors who are explicitly teaching SEL lessons in K-5 classrooms. Um, so they're teaching things like self-awareness they're teaching things like self-management they're teaching things like re relationship skills and how to be in healthy relationships versus unhealthy and toxic relationships and we're we're banking on that being a game changer for students as they um, matriculate up through fifth grade and then we're we're building the same thing into our middle school models mm -hmm. and what we're saying is this content is equally as important as math content or science content um that's something that I feel like we're going to have to see more of. And then the third thing I would say is just cannot shy away from and avoid having the conversations with our staff, um, with our teams, with our leadership, and then 
with our students eventually about things like racism, prejudice, bias, sexism, homophobia. I mean, all these things are alive and well in our schools. So much of that informs what's expected of students and what's expected of whole entire schools. Um, and so, you know, we have to continue to find more um, courageous ways to have those types of conversations. And that's, that's like, I think the majority of the work that we're trying to focus on in our new DEI team. Mm -hmm. Well, and so that it makes me think, so these are the conditions that you're talking about. And I think if we can even get more narrow here and like think about how how do you do this and so the counselors is one thing the dei the self-exploration the recognize and repair but do you want to give voice to any specific thing of those three things that you're talking about in the conditions of how people can actually do this in their own schools in their own classrooms yeah um so <clears throat> we've been partnering with um a woman by the name of Dr. Nancy Doe, and she just wrote a book um, that came out maybe less than a year ago. It's called Let, "Let's Talk About Race and How to Have Conversation Around Other Difficult, you know, Topics." And it's the whole idea is called um, compassionate dialogue. Mm. And the notion here is that we can actually have productive, meaningful, and transformative conversations around really challenging topics like racism, but there's a lot of other things that are addressed in her book as well, and how those things impact our day-to-day -day interactions with, with people. But we just have to have basically like entry-level tools to be able to do that. And so mm -hmm. she introduces this protocol. Her, her team is Epic Education, which is um, E-P-O-C-H, education. Mm -hmm. And they introduce this protocol called Recognize, Interrupt, Repair. And we we have said in our district that we feel like if we're able to if we're able just bare minimum to equip every leader and it's something that all the way from you know the classroom to the superintendent we practice the recognize and repair protocol which means the recognize pieces when you hear something and it triggers something for you take a second to recognize how you feel and why is it that you feel that way um, because typically if we don't then we end up a either avoiding the conversation because we're like, oh my God, I can't believe they said that and walk away. Or we jump in and we're confrontational. Why would you say that? You know, that type of thing. And um, it's not productive. And so taking a moment to kind of step back, ask yourself, like, how am I feeling when I heard this and why do I feel that way? And maybe walking yourself down the ladder of inference a little bit and then coming in with a question, which is the interrupt part of the protocol. So saying something like, hey, can you explain more about what you meant when you said that? Or do you realize that when you say that it sounds like this or can you tell me more just basic you know entry-level questions to get the mm -hmm. person to kind of like unpack you know and own what they said and explain a little more um, and then the repair repair part of the protocol is to say what you said really bothered me and here's why it bothered me because my experience is this and so i don't know yet how you might change your perspective but like i want to keep this conversation going like that's the that's the you know, recognize and repair protocol. But what it does is it gives it gives people access to something that says, I actually do know how to say something when I hear, you know, a kid say, oh my God, that's so gay. You know, mm -hmm. and, and being able to step in and say like, hey, when you say that, do you realize it sounds like this? Or do you realize this is what it means? Or do you realize, you know, do you know what that means? And let me explain to you. And just compassionate dialogue, not confrontational. And so 
that's something that we, for a little over two years now, we have been teaching at all levels of our organization and holding the expectation that we have those conversations at the school site where, where things happen. Um, comments are said, you know, kids are teased or discriminated against, or teachers may use biased language towards students. And there's other teachers who want to say something, but don't know how to say it. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to teach that throughout the entire organization and hold the expectation that we expect you to engage when you hear things like this. Jordy, I love this. And I think because oftentimes an SEL gets put in a box and in a box that doesn't really allow for us to think more focused on these very specific things that you're talking about, the race, the sex and the homophobia. And, you know, I think SEL is more oftentimes gets encompassed with our, yes, self-regulation right. and things right. of that sort, but like not the, the nuts and bolts of like this stuff that is really impacting how we are interacting in society. Right. And I just, I love hearing that. And I, you know, I think, yeah, oftentimes it's like, we're doing a character trait every month. And that's right. what SEL is oftentimes, not to say that every school does that. I mean, I think a lot of schools are, are getting on the, on the train of like, okay, we are doing more specific things about how our students can be thinking and more thoughtful um, members of society. With that, I am also thinking about some of the quotes that you put in the questionnaire. And I I think this probably connects to what you're saying. And I really appreciate the how, and I'm definitely going to go and read the book. I'm so excited. But one of the quotes you said are humans are complex. Schools are microcosms of society. Challenges show up at school and we must learn to address them and respond to them. And I think this is one way that you're doing this, but I'd love to like dig in more to what's underneath that belief that you have and how you're thinking about it on a a grander scale. Yeah, um, man, I think if anything demonstrated the necessity and the, the role of schools, it's been the pandemic. Mm. Like my my lord, I mean, we we closed schools on what like March nineteenth or something like that, and March thirteenth, and then two days later, like our district and I'm sure most districts across the country, like shifted immediately to virtual schooling. None of us really knew how to do that, but we did it, um, and we were serving food. We were handing out hot spots we were doing drop-offs yeah. with laptops and computers and um i mean i you know when i when i take like a balcony view of what that first like three to four months look like um i think you know I, I have an opportunity to talk to a lot of like district level leaders across the nation because of my connections with the leaders and my connections with um edld and every single one of us were like working almost 24 hours a day to figure out like how do we reach, how do we reach kids? And like, how do we not lose them? And, and it was like, so much of society was like sharing how they were so dependent on schools, mm. food, access. Can you keep my kid busy during the day? Can you keep my kid informed during the day? Can like, you know, when it came down to it, like <clears throat> schools were, were pushed to open in a, in a lot of ways that weren't necessarily safe for us to reopen at the time, but we had to, because it was like, the rest of the society needed schools to be open so people could, could work. And, you know, I say that just to say like, that's a, that's a really good example of 
how schools are expected, whether it's implicit or explicit, like we're expected to show up and mm -hmm. um, address society's challenges and be responsive 24 seven. And, but then bigger than that, this idea of, of humans are complex. Um, you know, a lot of my work has been in the world of discipline, especially in my role of um, student services, because at this, at that level, like you set policy and guidance for the entire district on how we want um, students to interact with discipline. And um, we have for, for years now tried, been, we've been on this journey of shifting from punitive to restorative mm -hmm. saying, you know, meaning like we still want consequences and, and <clears throat> rules and expectations for our students. And do they have to be punitive for them to actually matter or to um, affect change or, you know, quote unquote, teach a student a lesson. Mm -hmm. um, and we made a really, really strong push on this, at least the first three years when I was in the student services role to like really look at our numbers and say, okay, we, we have to reduce our suspensions and expulsions because we're excluding kids um, and, it's, and it's hurting us in the long run because they're excluded to the point where they don't want to come back, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and they get so used to being excluded that that informs their perspective and experience with school. And so over time, it's like, if you keep telling someone you're not welcomed here because your behavior is communicating some sort of need that we don't understand, then over time, the kid feels like, well, hell, like, I'm just going to stop showing up, mm -hmm. you know, and like, I'm, I'm not, I don't know how to act there. I'm not welcome when I act the way that I act there. I'm not even sure why I'm acting this way, but I'm trying to like communicate something, but I keep getting pushed out. And so what am I supposed to do? You know, and so we see, we saw examples of kids like in middle school getting excluded to the point like, you know, suspension, suspension, suspension. And then there's an expulsion and it's like, all right, we're never gonna get that kid back. Mm -hmm. Those, like when students show up in your schools and they have all their stuff and adults show up to the schools and they have all their stuff. And then you throw in a worldwide pandemic where all everybody's stuff is like magnified. And you say, all right, like now be together in school and like, you know, learn for the day it's like okay learn what like learn learn content or like learn how to be with each other or like learn how to um, you know work through trauma that people have experienced learn how to be in relationships with people um learn how learn how you learn <laughs> it's like all these things are happening on a day-to-day -day basis and as simplistic as we try to make teaching we'll just do a b and c and then like your kids will get these types of results on the test it's like is not that simple <laughs> and and that's why we do so much work with our staff around what unconscious bias is how it impacts your classroom how it impacts your your perspective and how so much of it can really happen and you know implicitly and unconsciously and if we're going to say to our students that one of the things we want you to do is to be self-aware then we better make sure our teachers are also practicing mm -hmm. self-awareness. We better make sure our principals and our district leaders are practicing self-awareness. And so nobody really gets to like check their stuff at the door when they come into schools. Like, I mean, to an extent we do, but but we still bring ourselves into school. And I think if we 
if we are going to continue to to like truly create safe and affirming and inclusive spaces for people to work and learn then there's going to continue to be stuff that comes up and says like oh wow like that's messy like how do we work through that like it or not like that's that's the work that schools also engage in it's not just content mm -hmm. i i always say this too it, education is not schooling schooling is what used to be education is something very different like we are no longer schooling kids we are truly educated and educating is all encompassing right um, so Jordy, to that point too, I think, you know, there are many barriers. You talk about Maslow's before blooms, you're talking about the complexity of humans. And I know another one of your drivers is the removal of barriers. So students and staff can be their best selves so that our students have access and opportunity. What are some of those barriers that you think about? And how are you at a systems level working to remove them? One of the things that our our office does, our team does, is we support students who are foster or transitional, mm -hmm. you know, homeless mm -hmm. youth. There's a there's a ton of law and policy and everything like that 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 allows you to be able to support those students as they access school. Um, but there's also a ton of things that like districts can do, you know, just local board policy, the ways in which you know you connect with those with those people. So like, I have an amazing coordinator on my team. Um, she's my sidekick. Like. She's not even a sidekick. We're like partners in crime. So her name is Maisha. Maisha <laughs> um, Wiggum is her name. And she directly supports our students who are foster transitional. And her approach to it is like making real connections, like person to person, whether it's like, I'm going to visit you at school. I'm going to visit you on the weekend. I'm going to check in with you. I'm going to call you. I'm going to um, show up at whatever place you, you happen to be living at at that time and make sure you're good, make sure you're connected to school, make sure you have what you need. You know, like we're in a district of about 17,000 kids. So like, it's a lot. Um, and there are districts that are way bigger than us. Um, and, you know, so I think one of the things I'm, one of the things that I'm talking about is just how anybody who teaches or leads, and I'm not saying you have to be proximate to them so that you can fix them because it's not a deficit thing, right? It's just like, you got to show up, you got to be there, you got to understand like what the challenges are in order to actually say, okay, like as a team, what can we do to address these? So that's, that's one thing. The other is a, a goal of our team this year has been, we always joke because we're like, okay, Oceanside is one of the most diverse places in the world. And so why the heck do we have a, a department focused on diversity? The outcome is this, it's not that we're creating diversity or responsible for that. It's we are responsible for including the diverse perspectives and lived experiences of our community and mm. what we do and specifically like in policy that we make and guidance that we have curriculum that we put in front of our kids like whether or not it's representative of the diverse group of um, students that we have and so that's another piece um and then one of the things that i've been more surprised to see because i didn't understand this until I went to the district level was when you step into a place and people are like well we can't do that then the question is always like, well, why can't we do it? And you can't do it because of either policy, practice, or precedent. It's like one of those three things, right? Um, and what I found out over time is you can change precedent. It just, it takes time because you have to lead people through a change process. Um, you can change practice, same thing, it takes time. Um, and one of the things I didn't know before I got in here was like, you can actually change policy. You can, you can rewrite policy. You can throw the old one out 
and you can look at it and say, this hasn't been updated in 20 years. And so we're going to rewrite a new one. And, mm-hmm. um, and so to that end, over the past you know three years, we've changed a lot of our policy specifically in support of harassment and discrimination um, about gender identity, about um, uh, the race, about um, economics. And so it's like if those things actually are updated and live in your organization and you say, we are not going to allow, um, you know, discrimination to go unchecked in our system and to um, we're going to be very explicit on how we speak about it and call it out. Like that matters. Um, and so you got to have policy to back it up too. So that's one of the ways that we've been doing it on our team. Awesome. And who do we have here? Is this your little list? This is Luke. Hi, Luke. Oh my gosh. I have not met Luke. <laughs> yeah, this is Luke. Can you say hello? No, no that's, okay. <laughs> that's okay. That's <laughs> okay. Um, I love that. And I definitely a quote that we will be using at the end of here because you can, and to your point, it takes time. And that's the part I think that people get frustrated with, right? Yes, we are yes, so yes. urgent. I mean, people like you and the, I'm sure the people that you went to school with, and I'm just thinking about everyone that we've worked with in the last 17 years, right. we just want to see this change so badly tomorrow. And it's not, and it's frustrating, but there are, there right. are possibilities to make change. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because um, I am 100% grateful for all my background and teaching and, and training and the path that I went through to teaching and the school leadership. And there's a lot of it that I've like unlearned over time. I was trained in the turnaround model. Like you get in there, you get results immediately, flip everything on its head, or you burn the, everything down and start over. Like I was trained in that sort of way where it was like, you need to get results immediately. It needs to be at least uh, a year. And what I've found over time is A, that is possible. B, there's a cost to that. And it's usually not to the person. It's usually to the community or to the school that you did that with. And C, it doesn't have to be that way. For it to actually take root and for you to actually um, affect. Okay. (laughs) I hope you can edit some of this. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in order for that to actually affect change, like over time and to change practice over time and to get people to own the change, you know, regardless of how long you are there, um, that takes time. I mean, the restorative practices work that we've been doing in our district, like it didn't start with me. We, they did it, you know, a while back. And then, but when I came in as, as director, like we had a renewed focus on it. But it's been like three or four years now, and we made a ton of progress, but we are still not there. Mm-hmm. And, and I have people on my team would be like, well, shouldn't we just like move on to the next thing then? Like, if this isn't working, I'm like, it's not that it's not working. It's just not at scale yet. And, and I'm like, if you want to see it work, I can take you to some places and show you mm-hmm. specific schools, specific classrooms, specific teachers, like who have changed their practice, changed their beliefs, like, but you know, is it at scale yet? No, it's not scale, but we'll get there. And, you know, so that's one of the things I talked about just in my, in my questionnaire was that consistency, like that's the language I have come to believe that that's the language that students speak is consistency. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just, we're going to try this. And if it doesn't work, oh, well, like we're really good at that in education. 
but consistency is something that you know even as a society we don't we don't do well because it's we don't you know we like the immediate, the immediate gratification side of things jordy last question for you and luke <laughs> is given that you are in the you're running the marathon and and you're running it well what advice do you have to educators today so that they can feel that sense of hope that you are holding on to so they have that that sense of belief and possibility i think i mean i always encourage people to on a regular basis and this could be this could be daily if you're having a really bad week this could be monthly if you're having a hard year or it could just be like each year as you as you teach or work in schools like go back to why you began teaching in the first place and i'm not saying like go back to your belief i'm like go back to a person like who is a person because we educators usually have more than just one um who is a person who you admired at some point in your life they were a teacher and you were like oh my god that person's so cool like i want to be them and then like later on as you became a teacher you're like that's the type of teacher i want to be and remind yourself that you you started this for a reason and even on your worst days that reason hasn't changed and so like just as a constant reminder i think i think that has to be a practice like that is a discipline i think that people have to develop if you're going to stay in something long term because we all know like there are plenty of options outside of education that people could step into and like use their skills and they would be really helpful in other facets and stuff like that but we need people to be in classrooms and in schools and in relationships with kids and so i think people have to practice reminding themselves um, of the examples that came before them i also you know I, I spoke a little bit to this but that um especially over the past couple of years i think educators have had every reason to say that's it i'm done mm -hmm. like and and, I, and honestly like a lot of us would not fault them for doing that because of how hard it's been and how much we've been expected to do and um and I just, you know, I've had a lot of conversations, hard conversations with people all the way from the instructional assistant position to the bus driver to, you know, director to principal, who's like, I think I'm, you know, I think I'm done. And I'm just like, don't like at least stick it out for like another year or two, just to see what it looks like on the other side mm -hmm. of this coming out of the pandemic, because it may be something that you've been waiting for, or that you've been hoping for for quite some time but like don't leave like when we're, when we're in the mess of it because like th that's that's not a true reflection of what it actually is right now right yeah. and so i just go back to the idea that um the language that kids speak is consistency so you could show up every day as a teacher and stumble over your content especially if you're a beginning teacher and like not hit the mark every single day and that would matter less to the kids than you showing up every day and if you show up every day and this is not saying you shouldn't take time off because everybody mm -hmm. should take time off in fact educators should have sabbaticals that's another one thing i want to talk about another time mm -hmm. um but showing up every day and especially like coming back when your kids might be like there's no way they're coming back mm -hmm. um that that matters i mean long term to people that matters and so i i think it's you know we shouldn't expect that we have a great day every single day 
Um, I don't think anybody's job is really like that. I think we should we, we can continue showing up and we have a lot of opportunity to respond to what's happened over the past couple of years. I think it's ripe to do that. And I also think that if people do stick it out and, and follow through on this, um, then there's a lot about teaching and learning and creating spaces in schools that they're going to be rewarded with if, um, and, and understand that like, that's the reason why, why I stayed, so. Mm-hmm. Mm. Jordy, thank you. And I think what we'll do is leave this on a cliffhanger. So then when we have you back on, because people are like, well, tell me more about sabbatical because I want to hear all about it. So Jordy, thank you so much for being on today and just sharing your insight and wisdom. And I, I've seen the, the ebb and flow of, of the work and how hard it is and seen it in different capacities of the work that you've done over the last 17 years. But one thing has been constant and that is your passion and your belief in this. And I just love hearing how you are thinking about that belief in other teachers. So thank you so much. I guess this is one of many installments that, that we will have on Teacher Renewed. Thank you. I'm really grateful for the opportunity, not only just share, but also to connect with you again and, and talk with you. It's like old times. I know. Jordy, thank you so much for being on today's episode. I am still smiling ear to ear. Here are the takeaways from today's episode. Number one, this work is about opportunity and access. Number two, Maslow's before blooms. No one wants to work or learn where they aren't affirmed or feel like they don't belong. We must be asking ourselves, how can we create the conditions for affirmation and belonging? Number three, In education, we cannot shy away from or avoid having conversations around topics like race. And there are ways we can do this productively with compassionate dialogue. Number four, humans are complex and learning this day and age is not simple. We have to put the needs and understanding of humans first. Number five, if we want our students to be self-aware, then we, the adults in their lives, must practice self-awareness. Number six, we have to be proximate to the students and communities we support and serve. Seven, we are responsible for including the diverse perspectives and lived experiences of our community and what we do. Eight, change takes time, but you can change things. You can change policy. You can change practice. You can change precedent. Number nine, students speak the language of consistency. And number 10, Remember the examples that came before you. Remembered what inspired you about them and brought you to education. Don't give up just yet. There is something more and better on the other side. Don't forget to sign up for our Teacher Renewed community on Facebook. Follow me on Instagram at teacher underscore renewed, as well as sign up for my newsletter to be a part of a community that is working to collectively to support educators and make education better.